Amen. That's why we're here this morning. We're not here for a pep talk, a, a resolve to improve our lives going into the next week. No, we're here not as, as people that are burdened with the task for constant improvement, but here to rest in what Christ has done for us, that it was finished upon that cross. That's why we're here this morning. My name's John Lee. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1066. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, on until uh, Hebrews 10, 18. 10, 18. Now, let me see. When I had been preaching through the book of Hebrews, I was able to do Hebrews 7 through 9 in kind of one consecutive set. Hebrews 10 is really the climactic conclusion to that set. So I'm sure you all remember every detail from Hebrews 7 through 9. Uh, and, and we'll conclude kind of that idea and the central argument from, from the author of Hebrews here in, in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18, but I'll start from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It says this, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself. So he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. And not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. 
Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's pray. Lord, we believe the words that we sang, that, that it was finished upon that cross. And Lord, as we hear from your word this morning about the work that your son has done for us in his death, his resurrection, here in his ascension and, and presentation of his sacrifice, we, we know, Lord, that we can't understand it if you don't help us. We're helpless without your grace. Our own efforts are as useless as these sacrifices that we just read about. So we ask, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to understand. That you would open our ears, soften our hearts, to see glories of your gospel and your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Admit you did wrong, resolve to do better. Admit you did wrong, resolve to do better. Last two Saturdays ago, I was at a wedding having a conversation with someone who wasn't a Christian, and that's how he summed up all of religion. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, however you shake it, at the end of the day, all religions do the same thing. You admit that you did something wrong. You messed up, and then you resolve to do better. You, you follow the five pillars of Islam, or, or you go into the confession booth, and, and you get things taken care of, or, or you show up to Bethany Baptist Church on Sunday morning, and you sing songs together. Whatever it is, you admit that you did wrong, and then you resolve to do better. Is that the same for those of us who profess to follow Jesus? Is that, is that what we're called to do as we follow Christ? To just admit that we did wrong and then resolve to do better? 
Well, Hebrews 10 is an argument against that thesis. That, that we should absolutely acknowledge that we've done wrong with our sins. But the solution to sins doesn't come from any inward resolve from ourselves. It doesn't come from any promise or external action that we could do. But it comes in the finished sacrifice of Christ. It comes in the finished sacrifice of Christ. So this is the main idea for us this morning. To trust in Jesus the better True, finished sacrifice. Say it again. Trust in Jesus, the better, true, and finished sacrifice. So there are going to be three kind of points that we see as, as the author of Hebrews concludes this kind of arc here. Uh, first, turn away from useless shadows. Turn away from useless shadows. Number two. Turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. Turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. And lastly, point three, trust in the seated Savior. Trust in the seated Savior. Up until this point in, in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, uh, the author of Hebrews has been doing a comparison between Christ and the old covenant ways. The, the people that the author of Hebrews was writing to were likely tempted, whether it was through persecution or, or difficulties or honestly just convenience, to kind of turn back. They were all Jewish uh, in terms of people that were receiving this letter, and they were receiving some kind of temptation in some sort to leave Christ and go back to the old covenant way of doing things. Go back to the temple. Go back and present sacrifices. And what the author of Hebrews is doing really in kind of this climax of the book is comparing what you get with the old covenant and what you get with the new covenant with Christ. And, it, and the whole point of this letter and, and what he's trying to argue is that Christ is so much better that you shouldn't go back. Why would you? Christ is better in every single Way. So just to overview these chapters for you, Hebrews 7 talks about how Christ is a better priesthood, right? Comparing the Levitical priest with Melchizedek and saying that Jesus is a better priest. Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 6 talks about a better place. That, that the heavenly temple that Jesus is currently in is better than the janky earthly temple that the Levitical priests are in. Hebrews 8 verse 7 into chapter 9 talks about a better promise, a better promise. So comparing the old covenant laws with the new covenant promises and saying that the new covenant promises are better. And then now in Hebrews chapter 10, the author in kind of a climax bring in really the entirety of all the themes in Hebrews chapter 1 to 9. All collide in, in this section here by stating that Jesus is a better propitiation. Propitiation, that's a SAT word. It just means atoning sacrifice. When you hear propitiation, you should be thinking sacrifice for my sins. So a better priesthood, a better place, a better promise, and now a better propitiation. Does that make sense? Those spark notes for like the last four sermons for you. Okay, point number one. Turn away from useless shadows. 
Turn away from useless shadows. Let's look at verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers being offered, uh, purified once and for all, but no longer have any consciousness of sins. So after working to compare the priesthood, the temple, and, and the agreements between the old covenant and the new covenant, the author now is taking time to compare the effectiveness of the two covenants. That if you were to go back to the old covenant and go back to Old Testament sacrifices, what's that going to do for you compared to what Christ does for you. And his answer is that the old covenant doesn't do anything. It's useless. The old covenant or the law only had the shadow of good things. It, it wasn't the reality itself. In other words, this, this system of, of sacrifices where if you were sinning or if you remembered your sin on the day of atonement, you're supposed to bring a sacrifice into the temple, that, that the sh blood that was being shed through this old covenant system, it never worked. It never made you clean enough or perfect enough or holy enough to enter into God's presence. And the reason was because it wasn't designed to. It wasn't designed to. It was built faulty. And, and the evidence that the author points to for why this uh, system doesn't actually perfect worshipers is the fact that they have to give the same sacrifices over and over and over again, year after year. Because if the thing worked, the system actually made you clean enough, made you holy enough, made you perfect enough, you wouldn't have to do it again. You wouldn't have to do it again. You would become clean. You would actually become sinless. You'd be pure enough to be able to go in. Right? And, and notice the language there at the end of verse 2 when it talks about kind of this sinful state that we have. Right? It says, we no longer have any consciousness of sins. Consciousness of sins. That, that if these Old Testament sacrifices were, were good enough to cleanse you, it, would, it wouldn't just cleanse your kind of outward appearance, but would go deep into the very depths of your soul. That you wouldn't even have a consciousness for sins. Now, I don't think what the author is talking about here is kind of like an ignorance of sin. Like, what? Murder? What's that? Like, that's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. What he's talking about is a comprehensive cleansing that goes deeper than just your hands. It goes all the way into your heart and your head. That, that the sacrifice that would actually work for you, that would actually be forgiving for you, wouldn't just cleanse your exterior, but would restore you from the inside to the point that you don't even have a consciousness of sin, that you wouldn't even think about it or, or consider it. It wouldn't feel like an option to you. It's almost like a restoration to the Garden of Eden, right? What did Adam and Eve eat when they fell into sin? The fruit of what? The knowledge of good and evil. See, what, what Adam and Eve are, are stained with is not just sinful actions that they, that they do, but actually sinful consciousness, 
stuff that go deep down, the nagging feeling that they themselves aren't good enough, there's something wrong, that they desire sin, and no amount of bull's blood could drown a guilty heart. Some have defined stupidity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. In this case, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Old Testament Israelites and, and kind of people that are going to these old covenant sacrifices in light of Christ who's come, that's exactly what they're doing. They keep doing the same sacrifices over and over and over again, and they're still sinful. So going to these sacrifices to sanctify you is stupid. It's stupid. That's not what they're meant to do. So what are they meant to do? You can see that in verse 3. Read with me. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the sacrifices themselves aren't bad, right? Uh, a lot of people will ask when they read Hebrews 10, like, well, does that mean that the Old Testament is sinful or that God somehow gave them bad commands? No. He, he gave them perfect laws to follow. They, they serve a purpose. They're a symbol. They're not meant to accomplish things. They're meant to point to other things. Like we heard last week about Ezekiel being a prophet, having to lie on his side for months, and anyone who's over the age of... 35 can feel your joints ache just thinking about that. What's Ezekiel doing? Laying on his side doesn't do anything for Israel, right? What he's doing is he's communicating something, right, with his own body. He's, he's representing a symbol. And what symbols do is they point to something else. They point to something else. And what these sacrifices are designed to do is not cleanse you, not make you holy enough, but to remind you of your sins year after year, they serve as a, as a tool for soul examination. That they're tangible reminders that, that when you sin against the Lord and, and you bring the animal into the temple and you see the blood being spilt and, and the priest sprinkles its blood on the altar, you would be reminded that you're dirty, that you're dirty. And this reminder happens year after year. It's like a health physical, right, that tells you that you're sick every single year. And, and scans and exams are really helpful, aren't they? It's good to go into a hospital and, and get examined, right, get an x-ray or get a CT scan or an MRI. Those things are good and helpful for you. But they help in identifying a problem. They don't help in fixing a problem. See, Old Testament sacrifices can't heal you any more than an x-ray can heal cancer. It tells you it's there. It doesn't give you the solution for it. Now, I don't think that any of us here this morning have a proclivity towards goat sacrifices. Right? Uh, sorry, Larry, you have to go. I messed up. None of us are doing that. But we've all fallen into a trap of thinking that our hands can clean our hearts. Right? That our hands can clean our hearts, say, admit you're wrong and resolve to do better mentality. That, God, I know I messed up, but I read the Bible with somebody, and, and that should count for something, right? Or I give faithfully to my church, or even for myself, that, that I'm standing before the church this morning and, and giving a sermon to encourage people. 
almost as though the good things that we do cancel out the bad. But the truth is that even our own best efforts to stand pure before God is as useless as blood of the bulls and goats. You can't pay for your bills with monopoly money. You can't cleanse your soul with your own actions. What we need is a true sacrifice. A true sacrifice. That's point number one. Here's point number two. Turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. So if we're supposed to turn away from useless sacrifices, we're supposed to turn to the sanctifying sacrifice. Read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. See, this idea that the blood of bulls and goats don't work isn't a new idea. It's not like the Old Testament Israelites were getting duped into kind of doing this thing that they later found out actually didn't do anything. You can see clues of it in the Old Testament, right? And that's why the author of Hebrews takes time to read Psalm 40, right? To cite it, to show that this idea about sacrifices, not pleasing God, was, was already there. In other words, God doesn't expect us to be good enough to be acceptable to him. And he doesn't delight in our attempts to be good enough, to be acceptable to him. One of my guilty pleasures growing up was watching trashy reality TV. Uh, my guilty pleasure was Big Brother. Right? Uh, a bunch of people living in a house during the summer, and it's like mafia, and they're competing against each other to win $500,000. And, and over the course, you see people lie through their teeth, deceive one another, and manipulate one another in order to win this cash prize. And one of the winners one year was a Catholic school teacher who was so good at lying he could stab you from the front and you would still hug him afterwards. And he ended up winning the money. And, and in the interview, he said, you know, I'm doing a lot of things that I'm not proud of. But after this, I'm going to go to confession and get it taken care of. The problem with Dan Giesling is that he treats God like a vending machine. You put in confessions, and God will output the appropriate amount of grace. But the problem is, God is not a machine. He's a being. And he's clear in what he desires and what he delights in. He can see through our fake attempts to be good enough, and he sees us for who we truly are. See, what we need isn't a resolve to go to confession and get it taken care of. What we need is something outside of us. We need another person. See, what God delights in here isn't our sacrificial acts, but in a body. God prepares a body. There's someone that the law here in Psalm 40 is talking about. And that someone isn't you. It's Jesus. As he 
comes into the world. See, God doesn't delight in sacrifices and offerings, but he does delight in his son, the divine and Davidic son, the man who's truly God and truly man. And what does this divine Davidic son come to do? He comes to do God's will. See, this is Jesus speaking here in verse 7, saying, Behold, all the things that you see in your Old Testament, it's about me. And I've come to do my Father's will. That's what he's saying here in verse 7. Let's read more about Jesus here in verse 8. After he says above, he did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. What does God do? He takes away the first to establish the second. See, the Old Testament sacrifices served a very specific purpose, and they had an expiration date. See, they serve as a shadow pointing to the person that was to come. And now that Jesus had come, there's no more need for sacrifices anymore. That the pointer is no longer useful. It's almost like a countdown timer until Jesus arrives. Right? There's no need for a process for sanctification because Christ has accomplished it. And notice how this happens here in verse 10. It says, by this will. Whose will? God's will. See, it was God's intention for us to be sanctified, right? He wants to purify us, to cleanse us in a full, comprehensive, conclusive way. And the only way that he intended to do that was through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. See, God gets rid of the first to establish the second. What he gives is an offering as once for all time. In fact... This section here, verses 8 through 10, is the first time in the whole book that you see the words Jesus and Christ put together. Put together. That, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Davidic divine son. And what he does as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, is offer his body in such a way that we will never need any other sacrifice ever again. And in Christ, you have been sanctified. You have been sanctified. What he means here is that you don't need anything else to make you holy, to make you holy, to be made holy, to be able to stand before a holy God. I mean, haven't you ever been to places where you kind of feel like you don't belong? Right? Like a wedding where you're just grossly underdressed. 
I remember one time I was invited to, to get lunch with a church member while I was living in Washington, D.C., uh, and I overslept. So I woke up, I panicked, grabbed my phone, sprinted out of my house, and since D.C. is a walking city, I just ran. It's hard to picture me running, but I did. Uh, <laughs> for a mile and I arrive at the US Senate office building, right? I'm panting, I'm meeting with this guy, he works on the Hill, he's a, he's a US Senator Chief of Staff. He goes, hey John, good to see you. I'm like sweating, I'm like, good to see you too, man. He's like, come on in, let me show you my office. I'm like, okay, cool, word, go inside, see his office, very pristine, very fancy. And he goes, let's just eat lunch downstairs. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I was wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and Adidas boosts, surrounded by men in suits and ties, controlling the US government. <laughs> and I don't think anybody needed to say anything. I just knew I don't belong here. <laughs> if you're in Christ, that feeling of I don't belong here completely disappears. If you're in Christ, you do belong here. And not only do you belong here, but in Christ, you are so sanctified, so perfect, so holy in the Lord's sight that you can ascend into the heavens and enter into the celestial temple of God himself. Why? Because you have Christ because you have Jesus Christ. That's the point of the whole letter. We have a great high priest, one who has done everything that we need, one who is perfectly holy, one who knows every weakness and sin and failure that we have ever committed. And rather than telling us that we need to resolve to do better, he comes himself and fulfills the law perfectly one who bore our sins and hung on a cursed tree. See, Christ is God's plan A, and he is all that we need. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, that is the good news that we want you to know, that you need Jesus. What you need isn't a second chance. What you need is a Savior. See, the author of Hebrews then takes these two ideas about useless sacrifices and this perfect sacrifice in Christ and kind of pieces them together in this climactic third point. Third point, number three, trust in the seated Savior. Trust in the seated Savior. Verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Imagine that image. All the priests of Israel, all of them, standing in the temple courts day after day, working nonstop, 24-7, no restroom break, like an Amazon factory. Right, a conveyor belt brings bull after bull and goat after goat, all coming to the priest as they keep slitting throat after throat, making sacrifice after sacrifice all day, every single day, over and over and over again. And all of it is utterly useless. 
can never take away sins. They're pointless. They're useless. They do nothing. But then comes Christ in verse 12. Read with me. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Christ shows up, offers one sacrifice, not a multitude of sacrifices, not a continual sacrifice, one sacrifice for sins. And that one sacrifice covers which time period? All of them, forever, for all time. Instead of standing up like these priests, continually making sacrifices and intercession before God and continuing to make payments for sin, he sits down at the right hand of God. And, and what does it mean for Christ to sit down? It, it means that his work as a great high priest is done. He did it. That in terms of the sacrificial work, pouring out blood, making atonement, it is complete. There's no other sacrifice left to give. There's no asterisk to Christ's forgiveness, that there's nothing left for Christ to pay, that when he dies on the cross and Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it. It is done. He's paid it all. And because he's done all that he needs to do, what does he do? He sits down. And where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of God on this divine Davidic throne that we talked about, Hebrews 1 and 2. That, that he sits not just as a high priest who's accomplished his task perfectly, who's kind of done that, but as a king reigning over all creation. What's happening here in Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12 is, is this image of Christ as priest and as king are colliding into one image. He finishes the work. He sits down, reigning over all creation, and he waits until his enemies are being made his footstool. Right. Think about what God does in Genesis 1. Right, he makes the sun, moon, stars, right, skies, seas, animals. And what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. Why does he rest? Because he doesn't have to do anything else, right? He's in charge of everything. We, we read different myths and, and mythology. Norse mythology has a war, right? Greek mythology has this, like, weird, like, gods versus other people, right? And out of the collision of kind of this conflict comes creation. And what does God do in Genesis 1? He says it. It happens. And on the seventh day, he breasts. Because there's no other threat to be concerned about, right? After this gathering, you're going to probably greet each other and hang out in this room because it's scorching outside. And what do parents do while they talk to you? Right? What are they doing? They're looking around, right? And if they don't see their kid, what do they do? They get up and they look around. Why? Because standing indicates that there's something to do. There's a threat out there. 
A kid can run into the street, right? Something dumb can happen. You stand out of concern of what could happen. And what does Christ do here in verses 11 and 12? Does he stand? No. He sits. Because there's no concern left. It's all done. He can sit, reigning over all creation. And he's still waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. That, that this work isn't done. So even though Christ has kind of completed his, his priestly work in the presentation of the sacrifice, and he is today currently reigning over all creation as king, he is still waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. In other words, this good stuff that we're talking about in Hebrews 10, it's only going to get better. We might have toil and tribulation today. You might have difficulties today. But... The submission of Christ's enemies is an inevitability. An inevitability. It will happen. We believe that Christ will win as enemies will be made his footstool. Let's look at verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. In Christ... He has perfected forever, forever. Now, when, when the author uses that word perfection, he doesn't mean that we're perfect as in we never sin or struggle, right? You should never look at a Christian in this life and think to yourself like immaculate, right? Perfection. That's not what he's talking about here. Throughout, throughout the whole book and, and even into the Old Testament, that, that word perfection is used to talk about kind of ceremonial cleanliness. That, that what a priest needs to do before he can enter into the Holy of Holies, right? The great high priest on, on the Day of Atonement, what he needs to do is perfect himself. And the way that he perfects himself is by making an atoning sacrifice, right, for himself. He sprinkles blood, he, he makes atonement, and that's supposed to cleanse himself before the eyes of God in light of his own sin to be clean enough to enter into the presence of God, right? And the, and the reason why this is necessary is because God is holy, right? And he can't stand uncleanliness in his sight, I remember being at a, at a tent revival in Arizona where they kept singing for Shekinah glory to fall down. And I was standing on the edge of the tent and I was silently praying to myself, Lord, no. <laughs> and the reason is because if we're not in Christ, you're going to die. You're going to melt because God is holy. right? And you can't have unholiness in his sight. So what you need to do is perfect yourself. Right? And, and so one priest, once a year, after making an entire elaborate, long process of sacrifices just for himself, is able to enter into an earthly holy of holies. And what does Christ do? With one sacrifice, he has perfected forever all those who are sanctified. That's not just the great high priest anymore. If you are in Christ, you can enter into the heavenly holy of holies. And not only that, in the eyes of God, you are perfectly ceremonially clean. 
that you are holy in the Lord's sight, that you can enter into the very presence of God with complete confidence that the Lord can't and will not reject you that you can enter the heavenly holy of holies. And, and this sacrifice isn't something that needs to get renewed every year, like the Day of Atonement. It's one offering, and he has perfected us forever, forever. If you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've seen different altar calls in your life, right? The lights turn off, the keyboardist starts playing transcendent chords, right? The preacher invites you to come to the front and, and commit your life to the Lord. And some of us in this room were saved by that kind of invitation. And I'm so thankful to God for that. Right? And I don't want to shortchange that for a single second. But if you grew up in a church that practiced this kind of stuff regularly like I did, you've probably accepted the Lord as, as your personal Lord and Savior at least five times. Right? You've gone down the altar and you commit yourself to the Lord. And why do you do that over and over again? Because after you've walked down the altar and you've cried and, and someone's kind of put their hand on your head, right? You go home and what do you do? You sin, right? You sin. Habitual sins grip your heart. Frustrations boil over into defeat. Cynicism, fear. At the next invitation, you decide that, that what you really need to do is kind of start over, hit the reset button, re, recommit or, or renew and, and start all over. So you walk down the altar and you recommit yourself again. Maybe you do this every year or so. Maybe you do this every week. Maybe every day, day after day, recommitting yourself to Christ. Does that sound familiar? What Christ does with this one sacrifice is he frees us from this cycle, from this hamster wheel of resolving to do better and then messing up and then resolving again. If you have trusted in Christ, you are sanctified in his sight. You are perfected in the Lord's sight. You have every ability to enter into the very presence of a living God. Imagine that. You can do today what every Israelite couldn't do, except for the great high priest once a year after doing a sacrifice, going into a janky earthly temple. But you, every time that you pray, every time that you go before the Lord, and, and when you pass away and, and you go into the heavens, you are able to enter into the most intimate presence of the most holy God. Have you gone to him? Don't let Satan deceive you into feeling the weight of your own embarrassment or your own sins or your own hurts or, or harms in a way that tries to inhibit you from going to God. In Christ, you are perfect in his sight. The Father delights to see you. You can go to him. Can you start to see why the Hebrews turning back to Judaism is so particularly insidious and satanic? That they're looking at this finished sacrifice as capable of cleansing everything inside of them. And they're saying, no, I would rather deal with this cycle that exhausts me. Where I'm not able to go before the Lord. 
That's evil. That's satanic. That's cruel. God has unchained you from your bonds. Don't hang on to them with your own hands. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The author quotes Jeremiah to talk about what the Lord will do when Jesus comes. And on a side note, notice, this is just for free, quick topical sermon here on the side. Notice who the author of Hebrews quotes here. Who is speaking here in verse 15? Who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. The, the reason why we trust God's word isn't because these dudes were really smart or they were super articulate. The reason why we trust this book is because we believe that God is the one who's speaking. That's not just Jeremiah. It's the Holy Spirit who's speaking to us. All right, so box off. What is he saying? That he will put his laws on our hearts and write them on our minds. You may hear that and think, okay, that means as a Christian, I need to do better, right? But this isn't the same thing as God giving us a way to be good enough for him, a way to make amends or, or resolve to do better. This law is an extension of grace toward us, right? An extension of grace towards us, that the covenant that the Lord makes with you and I is not like the covenant with Israel. You see, the covenant with Israel mandated external actions in light of sins that were inside, right? And external actions alone cannot change internal affections. It doesn't change what you care about. You might go and live a debaucherous life and later go into the confession booth and get it taken care of. But what does God do here with this new covenant? He writes the law in your heart. That, that he inscribes his good, perfect, holy law on the inside. And he empowers us to be able to obey him on the outside. See, Christians don't obey in order to earn God's approval. It's because God has given us undeserved grace that we can obey him. That makes sense? It's not until you receive that internal change that you can actually follow and obey him. This isn't a resolve to do better. It's a result of what the better sacrifice has done for you. That makes sense? And that means that every good thing that we ever do, every act of obedience that we ever commit in response to God's goodness towards us, all of it comes from grace. It doesn't come from us cleaning ourselves up. It comes as a result of what God has done for us. True Christian obedience goes from the heart to the hands. It goes from the heart to the hands. What God does is he changes your affections before he mandates your obedience. He changes your affections before he mandates your obedience. It's not just that he's telling you to do better. He changes you so that you want to do better. 
so that you see the goodness of God in obedience. That's not just saying no to sin, but saying yes to God. And when you see the beauty of this sacrifice, you want to say yes. You want to say yes. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin or that you shouldn't obey unless you feel like it. Like you're sitting around like, well, my affections haven't changed yet, so I'm just going to keep on sinning. No, don't do that. But the trajectory of our lives isn't oriented around being kind of just good enough that we kind of hit the bare minimum so we can make our way into heaven. What happens is our affections have so turned that God has so transformed our lives and heart that we want to be like him. This also means that when we interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be quick to give them a three-step plan to get clean. Right? Take the time to talk about their hearts. Talk about their hearts. Where is their affection? It doesn't matter how bad you make someone's sin look. If Christ doesn't look sweet to them, they won't follow him. So start with the heart and then make sure you get to their hands. Let's read verse 17. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. God will never again remember your sins or your lawless acts. Now this isn't God giving himself kind of voluntary amnesia. Like he doesn't remember what you did, like some kind of clueless, brainwashed kind of buffoon. Like, you did what? I had no idea. It's that God has so forgiven your sins and your lawless acts that it has no bearing whatsoever on your standing before him, on your relationship with him. It doesn't affect him at all. I mean, have you ever looked at a person that you know that you've shared life with and and as you look at their face behind them, you can just kind of see all the regrets that you have with that person. A text that, that you didn't respond to or a time when they really needed you and you weren't there or a harsh word or a hurtful joke. Those kind of regrets can create distance between you and that person Sometimes you look at a person and you can remember all the harm that they've done to you. When you're in Christ and God looks at you, he remembers nothing. He remembers nothing. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when he looks at you, he sees the blood of his son a true, complete payment for all our sins. Not just so that you're even, but that he sees you as his precious child. That he will never remember your sins ever again. That that comprehensive forgetting is also a permanent forgetting. It's permanent. This isn't a second chance that you can somehow mess up again. This is a 
permanent forgetting in such a way that you never had to doubt your standing with God, that he has cleansed you and perfected you in such a way that you can go to him anytime, whatsoever, without exception. And with that level of forgiveness, there's no more offering to give for your sin. There's nothing left for you to give because Jesus has given it all. That's why we gather here this morning. That's why we gather here every morning. Not because of what we've done. Not because of what's in us, but because of what Christ has done for us. That's precisely what we do every single time that we take the Lord's Supper together. You know, we're not like Catholics. We don't believe that, that, the, re, that the Lord's Supper somehow represents the body of Christ, that the pita chips that we have become literally Christ's body or, or cranberry juice that should really be grape juice turns into Christ's blood. We don't believe any of that. We believe that if you were to take the crackers and you were to take the, the cup and you were to chew on that, that that would offer you literally no forgiveness whatsoever. The act of, of munching on this stuff isn't going to do every, anything for you except give you like 15 calories. There's nothing mystical or mysterious about crackers and juice. The, the grace that we receive when we take the bread or drink from the cup comes from remembering what has already been done. What has already been done. That there is a finished sacrifice. And it was presented already in heaven. And it was finished in such a conclusive way that Jesus doesn't have to stand up anymore. He doesn't have to come down and make up for your wrongdoings in the last week. He sat down because it is finished. It's done. And so the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake in after the sermon and after the takeaways is not a commitment to do better. Don't turn the Lord's Supper into another altar call. It's not time for you to just bring your regrets solely and just kind of resolve that you're going to do better next time. It's okay to confess your sins. But use that confession to taste of God's finished grace. Use it to see Christ's forgiveness for you. See, the Lord's Supper is not even primarily a reminder of all the ways that we've fallen short before him. It's a reminder of Christ's body broken for you, of Christ's blood spilt for you. That, that in Christ's finished sacrifice on the cross, he has given you everything that you will ever need. Christ has finished the work. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father, which means that there is nothing left for you to do except to go to him and to worship him. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Because sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, that, that we would not look to our own acts or any kind of form of resolving to do better to justify ourselves before you, but that we would look to your son's blood. And we thank you that in Christ we have everything that we will ever need. Pray this in